the Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 11th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before her. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, we're not going to actually pray. I tricked you. To prove a point, Nancy knew this was coming. She was here on Thursday. Uh, but notice, or what did you notice happened when I said those words? Let us pray. Did a few things maybe happen uh, to you, like in your mind? Maybe you bowed your head, closed your eyes, folded your hands, tried to quiet your thoughts, enter into a more spiritual place. Right? So beyond the actual words that we're taught to pray, we're even taught about certain right postures and gestures for prayer. And so whenever we talk about prayer, I think sometimes it can feel almost like a list of rules, similar to what we talked about in the children's message, right? A list of shoulds and should nots. This is how you should pray, and this is how you shouldn't pray. These are the things that you should pray for, and these are the things that you shouldn't pray for. Now, when I was growing up, I remember learning two different models of prayer along these lines. Uh, maybe you know them as well. The first one, uh, they're both acronyms, right? Very easy for kids to remember. The first one is ACTS, A-C-T-S. Does anybody know this? I know, all right, got at least one hand up, and I know Stacy mentioned she knew it on, from Thursday, too. Uh, so adoration, right, praising God in prayer, confession, it's pretty self-explanatory, thanksgiving, also pretty self-explanatory, and then supplication, last of all, 
Uh, you know them really well, Kevin. All right. Uh, supplication, which is maybe not a word that like a seventh grader, when I learned this, uh, would know, but it's just a word that means asking for things. And of course, that came last, because that's the last thing we're supposed to do in prayer. We're supposed to do in prayer, right? So that's the first one, acts. The second one is joy. That's a happy word. Does anybody know this model of prayer? Uh, so first we pray uh, about uh, Jesus or about God, right? Uh, so maybe some of that adoration and thanksgiving piece from the first model of prayer. Uh, then we pray about others, right? So others' needs, maybe the needs of the world uh, and our friends and family. And then finally, you can pray about yourself. Taking a theme here, right? The things that we come to God to ask for in prayer, like the whole reason we tend to pray to begin with seems to come last in all of these models. And I think maybe these models are good to teach kids and people how to pray, uh, but they become like these shoulds and should nots, these rules that make prayer almost like a burden, right? And at first glance, it can even feel like today's gospel story where we get Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is more like a list of shoulds and rules as well. When his disciples ask him, teach us to pray, Jesus gives them an answer. He gives them specific words to pray. Words that we have come to know, right, as the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm fairly certain that Jesus never intended for his advice on prayer uh, as wonderful as it is to become uh, such a fixture of our worship together. It's always a part of our communion liturgy every week. Every time uh, the people of God gather together in prayer, not just Lutherans, but certainly Christians of all kinds gather, usually the Lord's Prayer in some way, shape, or form is a part of that liturgy or worship service, right? Um, and yet it started off as simple advice on prayer. Uh, but it also tends to become, I think, uh, the kind of prayer that maybe we judge all other prayers against, because this one is, after all, whose prayer? The Lord's Prayer. And so this is what Jesus said, and so this is, this is the epitome of prayer. This is the, the benchmark. This is what we should strive after in our prayers. And then for those of us, and I don't think anyone is excluded from this, for those of us who struggle with our prayer life, uh, that can make our own prayers often feel inadequate. And so, as I was saying before, prayer can oftentimes feel like a burden, maintaining a prayer life or a prayer practice, leaving us to wonder what words to use in prayer. We don't think we know how to pray, or we worry that our prayers won't be good enough or we'll say the wrong words, and so we just shy away from praying altogether, right? Especially out loud. That's, that's the real kicker there, right? There's a remarkable thing I've noticed in just the last eight months of being a pastor, and certainly before that too, because I've been on the other side of this. Maybe you know where I'm going, but picture it. We're standing around, for instance, uh, at a church potluck, maybe here at Christ the King, I don't know, uh, or I'm out to dinner uh, with some members, and then the server brings our food. And of course, we're all very hungry and we're all eyeing the food, but then where do everyone's eyes turn? 
as if I have some magic words that suddenly make it okay for us to eat. Not discounting table grace. It is good to give thanks for our food and where it comes from and who prepares it. But it's just an interesting little thing. And I say all of that, uh, well, to say first, as an aside, you can all say those magic words too. Just because I have these fancy clothes on doesn't mean I have some special access to God. If I did, a lot of things would be different. Um, <laughs> but more to the point, I say that to be the first to confess uh, this sort of prayer anxiety, right? That sort of awkward tension or feeling of wanting to be sure to say just the right words for the right circumstances, right? Especially in prayer out loud. Now this anxiety about wanting to say the right words at the right time is not limited to prayer, right? Human beings, in case you haven't noticed, have long had this natural tendency to compete with each other, to try to compare ourselves to other people. When I was in college, uh, I studied uh, English literature. One of my first classes was in uh, literary criticism and analysis. And one literary scholar has even coined the phrase anxiety of influence. And according to his theory of the anxiety of influence, no author can ever create any truly original poem or play or work of fiction or essay, right? Because that author is always going to have in the back of her or his mind everything else that they've ever read or seen or heard. And whether or not you buy into this scholar's premise that there is no truly original or meaningful work, uh, I don't think he's completely true, uh, by the way, but whether or not you completely buy into that, uh, sort of his reasoning is valid. We always have in the back of our minds everything else that we've heard or seen uh, or absorbed from other people around us. Now, I mentioned I was an English major, so indulge me as we take a little detour uh, for the next part of this sermon into a little bit of poetry analysis. I came across a poem in the past couple of weeks uh, by the poet Linda Paston, and I think she captures this struggle really well uh, in her own poem, which is titled, uh, appropriately enough, Rereading Frost probably referring to the poet Robert Frost, right? So one poet reading another poet's work. And she begins this way. Sometimes I think all the best poems have been written already, and no one has time to read them, so why try to write more? So you can see her struggle, right? But she also goes on. At other times, though, I remember how one flower in a meadow, already full of flowers, somehow adds to the general fireworks effect. As you get to the top of a hill in Colorado, say, in high summer, and just look down at all that brimming color, I also tried to convince myself that the smallest note of the smallest instrument in the band, the triangle, for instance, is important to the conductor who stands there pointing his finger in the direction of the percussions demanding that one silvery ping, and I decide to not stop trying. 
And so this poet's struggle with writing poetry strikes me as remarkably similar, perhaps, to our own struggle with speaking our prayers. But her inspiration to persist in prayer also seems relevant, right? She considers the effect of even one flower in a meadow, because if one flower plus one flower plus you get the idea, it would be a pretty sparse meadow in the end, right? Or if even one note were missing in, say, I don't know, a praise band, uh, we might notice, right? Uh, or if someone forgets to play, we might notice. So every little piece is important, so you get the idea here that every prayer can also be important. But her poem keeps going, so she ends with, this decision to not stop trying, and she continues, at least not for a while. Though in truth, I'd rather just sit here, reading how someone else has been acquainted with the night already, and perfectly. I'll repeat those closing lines. And I decide not to stop trying, at least not for a while, Though in truth, I'd rather just sit here reading how someone else has been acquainted with the night already and perfectly. What if there were a third way, a middle ground between the two extremes of trying to come up with the best, most original, uh, perfectly worded poem or prayer on the one hand, and on the other, shying away from writing or praying at all for fear of saying the wrong thing. I think maybe that's the conclusion she arrives at. Now, it's no secret that I myself am much more at home in the pages of a hymnal or a prayer book, praying the historic prayers of the church that have been passed down through the centuries and the generations of Christianity. Several years ago, I fell in love with Compline, this prayer service that comes at the close of the day, one of the fixed hours of prayer that comes to us out of monastic traditions that are used to praying several times a day, beginning very early in the morning, usually every three hours until retiring for bed. And this Compline service, or night prayer, as our own hymnal calls it, comes at the very end of the day, right before bed. It's a very short prayer service, uh, has a lot of prayers that are repeated over and over again uh, from night to night. And so I would grow to cherish the words of these prayers that I would repeat night after night. And after a while, I could even close my eyes and say many of them from memory. And when you say words from memory, they start to take on a little bit of a deeper meaning as well, when they're sort of embedded into our existence. Now, one biblical scholar who's studied prayer has call, calls our attention to the power of these forms of fixed prayer, these, these prayers that are handed down through the centuries, right? There's power and even a certain comfort in praying the words that Christians have prayed throughout the years. Words that capture the depth and the breadth of human emotion and experience. Words that we can borrow when we don't have our own to speak. 
when, like the poet, we would rather just sit and read and pray how someone else has been acquainted with the night already and found the perfect words to say for a given experience or situation or circumstance. And there's nothing wrong with that middle road, latching on to someone else's words and making them our own. And this is what gets us back to Jesus's prayer. I think that's what Jesus is offering to his disciples. Teach us to pray, they say. And so he gives them words. He says, here are words to use when you need them. Use these words exactly as I say. Adapt them. Don't use them at all. Use them to inspire your own prayers. Because above all, prayer shouldn't be a burden. Prayer is a gift. Prayer is a gift that reminds us who God is and what God promises us. In Jesus' prayer, God gives us bread to share, forgiveness to give and to receive, strength to endure trials. Prayer is a gift that reminds us we're not alone After all, Jesus' prayer is a communal prayer. We pray it together every Sunday. Even when we pray it alone, we can be assured that maybe somewhere in the world someone else is praying that very same prayer at the same moment. But it's also a communal prayer, just in the words themselves. Give us. Forgive us. Do not bring us, right? This is a prayer for all of us. Prayer is a gift that reminds us about who God is, our bread giver, our forgiver, our sustainer, the one who is reliable and faithful. Sometimes we need each other's words or the pre-written prayers of our tradition that are found in our hymnals and prayer books. Sometimes our own words are best when they come to us. And sometimes... No words at all are needed, but just to sit in the silence and the stillness and the presence of God. No matter what form our prayers take, from the Lord's Prayer to the silence to anything in between, prayer is a gift that invites us into a way of life. It's not about us saying the right words in the right order or even with the right physical posture. And it certainly, thanks be to God, does not depend on our own worthiness in coming before God. Prayer, like the one that Jesus teaches us, is much more a confession of faith in who God is and what God has promised to be for us. The one who promises to hear us, who loves us, who forgives us, who sustains us. As often, that prayer ends forever and ever. Amen.